I knew nothing about Harry Guggenheim before I started reading Dirk Smiley's very readable, very accessible biography of this larger-than-life historical figure of the 20th century. He's been called the godfather of aviation, but I want to hear more about this very special visionary who took the gospel of wealth very seriously. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Dirk Smiley on the life of Harry Guggenheim is coming up next. I am not embarrassed to say I know very little about the Guggenheim name before I read Dirk's book, The Business of Tomorrow. However, I did remember that Benjamin Guggenheim gave up a seat on a lifeboat when the Titanic sank, and that's in Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember. So that's the first question I had for Dirk Smiley, if he's surprised how few people know the Guggenheim name. Uh, Not at all. And in some ways, um, I mean, I was uh, pretty much at that same level of knowledge about the family. I, I Certainly, everybody knows about the Guggenheim Museum. But uh, when I started this project, um, I had, I, you know, I started with total ignorance about um, Harry Guggenheim. I'd never heard the name before. So um, I sort of, uh, I kind of shared that um, sort of perception of the Guggenheim family as being like not much more there than the museum and um you know, Peggy Guggenheim, uh, of course, who had this amazingly colorful, interesting, and impactful life. But uh, other than her, I don't even think I could name another Guggenheim. So um, I, um, uh, and, you know, I did this book on the Falwell uh, family years ago, a kind of an expose of their family business. And I kind of started the same way in total ignorance. And then, you know, when I finished the project, I felt like I actually had learned a few things. So, um, this project was fun because it covers so much of the 20th century uh, with a lot of uh, history that people already know, whether it be aviation, rocketry, the museum, um, you know, horse racing, the founding of a newspaper, um, all these different things that Harry was involved with in his life. Uh, but to bring it all together, I, I kind of had to look at um, look at it all through the lens of Harry Guggenheim's life and someone who was really taking the torch from the old generation of the Guggenheim family uh, wealth, which was in mining and then bringing it up to bring it up to, to present day, uh, which involved all these other businesses and then philanthropy and uh, a museum. And then now a, a, a wall street firm. So um, we've kind of gone full, full circle. I would consider him someone similar to maybe Teddy Roosevelt who did so many things. Mm-hmm. Have you ever encountered a historical figure, or even someone today who's done so much in one lifetime. Yeah, that would be, um, I mean, there are people out there. I mean, someone would say, look, you know, Elon Musk, he's, how many companies companies has he started and how many is he running now? You know, how much can one person do? I think Harry was uh, motivated by some different forces, which was one of which was this feeling that the the whole future of the Guggenheim dynasty kind of fell on his shoulders. I, f- I think he felt a lot of responsibility because at that time, you know, when Harry kind of took over as the head of the family in the 30s, um, there were plenty of Guggenheims as there were in other rich families, the Vanderbilts in particular, um, plenty of people just felt like, you know, it's enough to enjoy your wealth, 
to give to charity every year and get involved in um, the social life of the city, wherever you're living. Um, but to basically enjoy your wealth was not such a bad thing. As a matter of fact, Harry's older brother, Robert, just actually stated to his father once, you know, every family has its men or women of leisure, and I've elected to choose that title right. for myself. He just flat out said, you know, don't count on don't count on me on being the next uh, sort of uh, heir. Uh, and um, so I think Harry felt like, you know, it all kind of fell to him to redefine the brand, to redefine what the Guggenheim family business would be in the future, because mining was uh, diminishing returns for the Guggenheims after the Depression. And uh, at, at a certain point, it the family identity became more attached to spending money rather than making it. And I think Harry was, um, he was a good steward of the family brand and also the family wealth. But I think it also kind of irked him the idea that the Guggenheims would just be known for spending money rather than making it now. So he, he did get involved in these other businesses as a kind of a social impact investor, these different kinds of um, sectors of business that you mentioned, uh, Mark. Uh, but I think it, in the end, he, he felt that, um, you know, for him, a good life meant creating institutions that were durable, that would last, would have an impact on society in a kind of a public interest kind of way, but to build things that would be here for, you know, 50 years down the road, hundred years, hopefully hundreds of years. And I think he largely succeeded in that, uh, in that task. I agree. I would love to be a fly on the wall listening to you at lunch, talking to Catherine Howe and Anderson Cooper about their story. And I just, we talked to her a few weeks ago, uh, the Vanderbilt dynasty. I don't know why we call it dynasty because it didn't last uh, very long. A lot of that money was spent. And you talk about the Guggenheim spending money. Well, the way they spent money, a little bit different, not on big homes, but on uh, industries. But I just, I, because I read that book, Vanderbilt, earlier in the year, it was hard not to compare and contrast uh, those two. Mm. I mean, markedly uh, different people, uh, different mindsets. Uh, that's not really a question, but had you thought about uh, some of the family members from the Gilded Age that mm-hmm. where generations did not continue? I certainly had. I mean, and, and the Vanderbilt is such a good example because, um, you know, as you know, Mark, um, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper made no bones about um, criticizing his own family history right. and basically saying that the Vanderbilt fortune was the largest fortune ever squandered. In the Guggenheim case, I guess I'd make the argument that Guggenheim family fortune is probably the largest ever, um, you know, well invested um, for 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 different reasons. Um, and again, not to say that there weren't people in among the Guggenheims who. Um, you know, behave like the Vanderbilts or like other Gilded Age um, uh, uh, scions or people who are inherited wealth. So it wasn't uncommon to just want to enjoy your money and not think about um, what the future of the family brand and uh, reputation would be. But um, it that's a stark contrast, the Vanderbilts versus the Guggenheims. And it's funny uh, because they do intersect um, at a couple of points in history, in particular in the, um, you know, in the early 50s, uh, the Vanderbilts had the highest earning horse racing stable 
in the country and they actually had a horse called um native dancer which competed in the 1953 kentucky derby and i have a, a sort of half of a chapter on that where harry's horse basically went up against vanderbilt's horse with a very surprising result um and uh so these families you know they all kind of had to sort out over the years you know how they were going to continue to exist um for those that cared about the family continuing to exist apparently there are a lot of vanderbilts that didn't really give a lot of thought to that but it, it was uh it's interesting to hear anderson cooper just say out loud you know how is it that this, this famous family, the most the wealthiest family in America, literally went from shirt sleeves to thir- shirt sleeves in like two or three generations? That's remarkable. Well, I have a very, very strong opinion, and it leads up to our next question or discussion. Let's talk about the origins of this family. And I don't care if you pick up uh, with Harry's father, or probably grandfather, maybe a starting point, or even his great-grandfather. But the the origin story is, it's classic. It's a great, it's a great entrepreneurial startup <laughs> story, right? Going all the way back, I guess, to stove polish. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to these products that were ubiquitous in American households in the late 19th century, but things that like no one has really cared about, much less heard about for, for decades. But yeah, stove polish is a good example. Uh, it, stove polish was a product that was in almost every um, home in America that had a stove, which is to say most of them. And, um, you know, Meyer Guggenheim, who was uh, Harry's grandfather, uh, just devised a kind of a simple new formula for stove polish, which he thought he could sell, uh, which involved grinding particles of a certain type of soap into the polish because soap, uh, stove polish at the time apparently was very, um, hard to, you know, wipe off of your hands. It was, it was a dirty substance. It was necessary. You had to condition the iron of these stoves to, for the stoves to last. But anyway, that was one of his first great successes, basically coming up with a new formula for stove polish. Um, another one was, um, this thing, I think it was called essence of coffee at the time. Coffee was a very expensive drink. Um, it was not a lower class or middle class beverage, you know, sort of wealthy people drank coffee. Um, but a lot of the beans that were not used in the higher blends of coffee, which were turned out to be sort of, uh, you know, bitter or, or, uh, not up to grade. Meyer got his hands on these beans somehow and he started to, and he, and he ground them with a, a substance that basically took the acidity out of the coffee. Uh, and, uh, so he started selling a, a kind of a, um, second label coffee to people. And that was a success. I say in the book, you know, like Howard Schultz. Right. Meyer didn't invent coffee. He just figured out a way to yes. serve it better. And that's what he he wound up doing in, in venture after venture. He could perceive things differently than other people somehow and find um, the weak points in a business that maybe wasn't doing too well and then uh, essentially make it work. Uh, so he was a clever entrepreneur. Um, none of this made him millions of dollars, but it made him enough money to invest in other ventures over mm-hmm. time. And eventually he got involved with a couple of silver mines out in Leadville, Colorado. And one of them um, flooded with water that scared off the other investors. So he wound up with a controlling stake in these mines. He hired a couple of engineers from Denver, uh, dewatered the mines. And naturally a short time after that, it had this huge mother load of silver uh, uh, strike. And uh, so that's where the Guggenheims really kind of made their early fortune uh, silver mines out in 
out in Colorado. And then over time, that expanded into other mining ventures, into smelting. And uh, at a certain point, a couple of decades later, um, the Guggenheims were in a position to take over their largest competitor. And the two companies combined formed the largest mining conglomerate on Earth. So that's kind of a short history of how the Guggenheims got into mining. Um, but that's really where the family wealth came from. And and uh, all these ventures that Harry got involved with uh really owe their origins to that initial um, wealth that was created among the, the Guggenheim brothers. These guys were just savvy. Instead of sticking with mining, smelting, you mentioned, and they became, they wiped out the middleman. And again, I just thought mm. th- these guys, they knew what they were doing. And then they eventually got into nitrates so just one step after the other, just intelligence. Uh, here's my theory on the differences between the Vanderbilts and the Guggenheims. I think it would have been cool if you had one of your chapters named The Bond of Brothers. You know where I'm headed with that? Mm-hmm. The Bond of Brothers. You, you remember how the, the I think it was, was it Meyer? Was it him? And he had his sons, and he talked about, you know, together you know, we can, we can be strong, but separately. So explain that bond that, that the father had with the kids. Yeah, that's a great question, Mark, because I think initially that approach worked very well from them, uh, worked well for them, um, collaborating with one another. They were far stronger as a collection of people. Um, you know, each of these brothers had different, um, capabilities, uh, different strengths and weaknesses in business. Um, one brother was a, a great kind of PR front man. He was very personable. He could deal with external sources, investors, uh, regulators well, and others were uh, better behind the scenes. You know, one in particular had a great knowledge of technology. That was uh, always a, a big uh, kind of force multiplier in the Guggenheim family business, adopting new technologies, in particular, uh, new refining techniques in metallurgy, um, figuring out ways to extract metals from rock in a more um, efficient way, basically make the companies and the mines more more uh, uh, profitable. So together, the, I think the collective intelligence and the collective entrepreneurial approach um, that the Guggenheims had worked very well for them. Um, around the turn of the century, a couple of the brothers broke off from the partnership, and that was the youngest brother, William, and uh, Benjamin, who you mentioned earlier, went down on the Titanic. So at one point, there were five brothers, but some years later, as the capabilities, I think, became evident to the uncles, capabilities of the younger uh, set, uh, in particular Harry and his um, his older um, cousin, Edmund, um, they became sort of suitable material from the standpoint of the older Guggenheim. So they were brought into the partnership. So it was then reformed as the five uncles and then, and then the two, uh, nephews that, that came on. But I think that Harry learned a lot about the, um, the value of collaboration and, um, you know, two minds, uh, two heads, uh, beat, beat one, you know, so to speak. And you also mentioned a couple of the letters, you, you share some excerpts between the father, Harry's father and Harry, I think when they're down in Mexico. So again, that bond was strong. And I, again, that's one of my theories of why, you know, Harry became such a strong uh, business person and just such a stalwart 
uh, during his time period. Even his one of his uncles, Solomon, uh, were very close uh, through the end of his life. Mm-hmm. So, again, I was really impressed with, I feel like one generation is passing down the wisdom and the knowledge to the next generation, which kind of leads to the next point. So Harry ends up leaving, quote unquote, the firm, mm. the partnership, yep. uh, but him and his father are still close. And then they start this endowment. What endowment? This was an aviation fund uh, to promote the um, the advancement of commercial aviation in the country uh, in the middle to late 1920s. And it came about because Harry's father, Daniel, was heading into his retirement year- years, and he was trying to figure out a more exciting, more effective kind of uh, agenda for his own philanthropic uh, efforts. And he had different ideas um, that were not very exciting, but he 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 was spending more time with Harry because Harry had quit the partnership over a dispute, actually. Um, and he was Harry was spending a lot of time in his plane, uh, flying around uh, Long Island. And at that time, there really were no airports to speak of. There were just landing strips. People uh, who, uh, you know, the small number of people who had private planes at that time, you know, they they just like look for a cow pasture or some kind of a wide road that they could land on. There was no weather service, no other, no weather forecasting. The instrument uh, controls in planes at that point were were you know very minimal. So um, this was kind of baffling to Harry in some respects because. Um, even though the United States had more or less invented the airplane with the Wright brothers, um, you know, that was 20 years earlier. And over that time, uh, there had been plenty of advancement in European aviation, but not so much in the United States. And that there were several reasons for that. I mean, one of them was the way that the Wright brothers were trying to protect their patents and their designs on the, uh, their early, um, uh, models of planes. Uh, so that kind of held back people like uh, Glenn Curtis, who was another famous aviator who had all kinds of designs that he was trying to advance. Uh, but, you know, when he borrowed them from the Wright brothers, you know, everything would come to a halt legally. So in any case, um, Harry and his father devised uh, a whole system of, um, I call them spark plugs, um, like Places within the the the, the nascent uh, commercial aviation economy that could use help, whether it be R and D or education, engineering schools around the country, um, a whole kind of suite of uh, things that would basically help to accelerate um, the expansion of, of aviation in the country. And so that's what his father and and he did over the next four or five years, uh, up right up until around 1930. Um, but the aviation fund reached across in so many different aspects of the industry at the time, um, really in a matter of a few short years, um, aviation just exploded. And of course, that's not, I'm not saying that was entirely due to Harry by any means, but Harry was the biggest spark plug of all, you know, in terms of being someone who knew a lot about aviation, knew a lot about planes. And of course, by that time, he had developed a very strong friendship with Charles Lindbergh and, um, you know, he and Lindbergh devised a lot of these strategies in terms of um, social impact investing from the uh, Guggenheim Aviation Fund. And that certainly was uh, a major factor in um, Harry's you know, ability to, to identify where to put all of his money uh, when it came to advancing aviation. Two big observations about that endowment 
in that endowment period. Number one, just the vision that that Harry had. I mean, he could see around corners, and I'm assuming there were people just like him uh, in the world of electricity and in and around, you know, Thomas Edison. But for him, it was aviation. So that's item number one. The other observation, uh, Dirk, is again, this is a public-private partnership. Has there, and, and again, I, I don't want, I, this may be an unfair question and, and I apologize if I'm asking you something that there's no way you could know this, but are you aware in any public private partnerships like this endowment over the history of our country? We'll be right back. Hey, you, yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. It was, yeah, it really was unique because uh, Harry had the cooperation of the Department of Commerce at the time. Um, He had uh, the cooperation of, um, for example, the uh, Postmaster General. You say, why would you need cooperation of the Postmaster when you're talking about planes well they came up with harry and Lindbergh came up with the idea of painting rooftops to indicate to flyers where the airports were located because again there was no um uh radar or uh you know things that could aid in that uh, so it was just something as simple as painting rooftops so that pilots could see where where you know make sure they were in the right city in the first place but also to fun- to direct them to the nearest landing field well you needed the um post office to help with that because a lot of um, the buildings that had to be identified and then contacted and the postal service had a listing of every address in the country. So little things like that made a big difference, uh, cooperating with government. Um, it, I would say it was also a highly unique fund in that its stated purpose was to go out of business just a few years after it was started. So the idea was to put these kind of financial spark plugs in in place and then let industry um, hopefully accelerate in the directions that Harry and his father and others involved with the aviation fund um, thought would actually happen and and which indeed did happen. So, uh, but to your point, Mark, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an utter, it, it was an utterly unique um, phenomenon at the time. Um, you know, Herbert Hoover had this whole concept of associationalism, which was, I think, the precursor to public-private partnerships. Um, so today, you, I think you do have more things like this. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of the Webb Telescope in particular, you know, that's sort of a multi-country effort, um, although I think the U.S. is footing most, if not all, of the financial, um, you know, uh, burden for this. So, but I would say in its day, it was an utterly unique vehicle to uh, accelerate uh, a, a, a a fledgling business in America, which has now kind of trans transformed culture, transportation, politics, you name it. 
And I would even go so far if anyone who wants to study trust or philanthropy, go to your book, because this is a very unique way of giving, giving it forward. And it wasn't just handouts either. So I, I, I mm-hmm. we could spend probably a half a day just on this endowment, but I just thought True. it was uh, phenomenal. And then you did mention the Lindbergh uh, Goddard. Uh, well, let me, let me go back. Let me go back. You mentioned the Lindbergh relationship that probably had a big impact on everything Harry's able to get accomplished. One thing I found interesting is Harry did not want to invest in his flight uh, to, to Europe. And I got that out of your book. He says, this is, this ain't going to work. That, that wasn't his exact words, but yet he still believed in what he was doing. Right. Absolutely. And you know, Mark, if you want to get any kind of flavor for what it was like to sit in Lindbergh's cockpit for the first time with the spirit of St. Louis, and then, and, and to get a sense of what a person's reaction would have been to that, um, go over to the the Cradle of Aviation Museum in Garden City. I, I don't know if you've visited there, but uh, recently they have put in a reproduction of Lindbergh's cockpit from the spirit of St. Louis. Uh, they have one of his earliest planes there as well, a Jenny uh, model, which uh, actually preceded the, Saint, the uh, spirit of St. Louis. But in any case, you can actually sit down in this reproduction of Lindbergh's cockpit. And, you know, the centerpiece of it was a wicker chair that had been kind of jerry-rigged into the floor. And you sit back in it and you can't eat. There's no windshield because the fuel tanks were taking up space where the windshield would normally go. So in order to see your way forward, you had to sort of lean to the left. And Lindbergh had devised this kind of wacky, like shoebox shaped periscope that would put you could push out to the left of the where the driver's seat was. And um, and then you could sort of see forward from that. So anyway, Harry uh, sat down. I mean, the, the first time he met Lindbergh was just a few days before his famous flight in 1927 from New York to Paris. And he met Lindbergh and Lindbergh said, hey, you know, have a seat, check it out. And Harry sat down and he said, thank you very much. It's nice to meet you, Mr. Lindbergh. Good luck. And as he walked away, Harry later said he thought he was doomed. He thought there was no chance this guy was going to make it. A number of people had already died or disappeared over the North Atlantic trying to c- commit this feat uh, of flying. And um, so Harry thought he was um, Lindbergh was doomed and um it was amazing that he made that voyage safely. And as you know, he became the most famous man in the world um, after his famous flight in 1927. And um, that certainly all did help Harry's efforts tremendously because, you know, what Lindbergh accomplished was the epitome of what Harry was trying to demonstrate, which was that flying is safe and it's, and flying is reliable. And so when Harry then, um, met Lindbergh after he came back from Europe. Um, the two of them worked out a uh, goodwill tour to kind of put a finer point on that idea. And the goodwill tour just involved Lindbergh visiting 82 cities across uh, 48 states over the, a period of a couple months that summer. And uh, the idea was to demonstrate, again, that flying is safe, flying is reliable. Um, and it's interesting because most people at that point had never actually seen an airplane in person. Um, they had read about them. They'd seen 
illustrations or photos in the newspapers, but to actually see a plane was a pretty exciting thing. And to see it land exactly at 2 p.m. every in every city that um, had been identified on the tour, Lindbergh made every single uh, touchdown at the same time um, uh, in every different city. And um, the only time he was late, I think, was when he got delayed by fog up at a landing spot in Maine. But other than that, um, his schedule ran on time. So that uh, speaks to the idea that um, one thing Harry was also trying to do was to change the narrative of aviation, which up until that time um, had portrayed pilots and flyers and these, you know, the early uh, aircraft as uh, an extremely dangerous um, things to fly. And um, so I think that that was uh, that was a big part of the of Harry's efforts is kind of like change the mentality about flying, uh, you know, in addition to advancing all these different kind of technological um, milestones that he was also working on, uh, but basically making the the perception of aviation um, one in which people would be much more um, uh, willing to actually buy a seat on an airplane. And I was not aware that tour until you wrote about it, found that very fascinating. And by the way, props to Lindbergh because he could have been set for life uh, financially. He had all of these job mm. offers, but yet because of that relationship with Harry, he aligns himself and he, he he's very vision uh, driven as well. He's mission driven in wanting to see aviation uh, continue to, to blossom uh, both commercially and and really for the good of uh, the the country, but mm-hmm. I, before we go on, so Scientific American has labeled Harry the Godfather of aviation, and I <laughs> would right. even say I would say the Godfather of the aviation industry, which we find in your book. But we can't move on until we talk about rocketry. Rocketry. Mm. Now, tell me if I read this right. There's a newspaper article, and I think Lindbergh and Harry are together having coffee. Was it Lindbergh that read the article about Goddard and saying, we ought to check this out? Or mm. did I misinterpret that part? I'm curious, who 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 first heard of Goddard? No, that's pretty close, Mark. Um, the way that Harry told the story was that uh, his wife at the time, Carol, was with um, uh, uh, Lindbergh and uh, and Harry uh, at Fillets. I think they were in the living room. And so they were just chatting one morning and um, Carol read a story out of the New York Times that day, which described um, Goddard's experiments up at his aunt's uh, cabbage farm in uh, Massachusetts. And at that point, up until that point, Harry and Lindbergh had been talking about, um, well, what comes next after aviation? Uh, it, you know, by then, this is around 1930, and Harry was actually being considered for uh, ambassador to Cuba, so he knew he was probably going to win that seat and then be off to Havana soon. But um, this, um, th- these experiments that Goddard were doing kind of resonated with Lindbergh and Harry. So Harry said to Charles Lindbergh, um, why don't you go check this doctor out and, you know, give a give a good look to his experiments and see if that's something that is worth uh, funding. So Harry went off to Havana. He did become ambassador to Cuba, 
Lindbergh went and visited Goddard and he was deeply impressed. And uh, so he came back to Harry and said, yeah, he's definitely worth funding. I mean, if anyone is going to have any kind of uh, successful rocket program in America, it would be Goddard. And um, I think Harry took Lindbergh's opinion seriously. He respected his kind of intelligence uh, about this subject. Uh, so, um, but Harry was busy and kind of, it was the beginning of the Cuban revolution and, um, things went south very fast in Havana. So Harry, I think was very preoccupied with things on the Island at the time. So, um, Lindbergh said, would you mind if I go and speak to your father about this, Daniel and Harry with Harry's blessing, Lindbergh went and talked about this matter of funding Goddard to uh, Daniel, Daniel agreed uh, so he 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 said, you know, how much money does this professor want? And Lindbergh said, well, he wants twenty five thousand a year for the next four years. So Daniel said, well, I'll give you fifty thousand now for these first two years. The additional fifty thousand is contingent upon um, Harry forming a committee, an advisory committee, and you know, looking at his work seriously, and then determining whether he's worth funding again and in the future. So that's how that initial funding from the Guggenheims came to uh, Goddard's work. And uh, unfortunately, Daniel died a short time after that. But Harry can, picked up the um, the baton, so to speak, and then he continued to fund Goddard uh, for close to a decade. He became, he became the single most important and most lasting source of funding for Robert Goddard, who, as you know, became kind of the the father of American rocketry. Some of the funding after, I think, year two or four was a little iffy-iffy, right? We'll be right back. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. That's true, Mark, because the depression was really taking its toll on, well, everybody in America, but in the, the the rich families like the Vanderbilts and the Guggenheims. Um, Guggenheims had a lot of their wealth uh, wrapped up in uh, mining stocks, and of course, stock market had completely collapsed. So, um, so I think Harry wanted to take a pause for a year or two and assess what the family's wealth really was and what it was going to be. Um, so there was a pause in that funding. And at that point, Goddard went back to Clark University where he was teaching physics. And, um, that basically put the, put the brakes on a lot of the, the more, um, significant testing that Goddard wanted to do. But Goddard did not stop. And, um, Harry came back to him and the two of them talked again uh, a couple years later. And that's when the funding, um, restarted and then continued up until, um, World War II. One other point, no spoilers, don't worry, no spoilers here, but I did not know the end of the story. I did not know how this was going to play out with Goddard, but there is a time where Goddard invited both Harry and Lindbergh to come see one of the, the tests, and you're smiling. 
And, and I was thinking, okay, is this going to continue? But we'll let the readers learn the rest of the story. Is it fair to say that yeah. Elon Musk owes a big thank you to Goddard? Absolutely. Um, in a number of ways. But, um, you know, the two, two of the biggest contributions that Goddard made to space research uh, was the um, introduction and the, use, the successful use of liquid-fueled propellants, which to this day continue to be the basic format of um, rocket propulsion across, you know, basically every country's space program. Um, Goddard developed that idea, um, you know, decades before sending men to the moon. Um, the second thing that Goddard developed was the concept of multi-stage rockets. And um, that uh, is is literally what enabled NASA to send men to the moon. And it enables company, you know, the concept is is, is still used by companies like SpaceX uh, or, or, you know, these other startups that have come along that are getting into space, uh, investing space research. So um, beyond those two basic concepts, um, I think it's it's interesting to um, consider the fact that private sector funding in space, although we we seem to think that it's a relatively new thing with the people like Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, but really you can go back to the middle of the 19th century when the observatories around the country were built um, mostly with private money. I mean, like the James Lick Observatory in California, a lot of the famous um, observatories that are still around today all got started with private money. And then you fast forward into the 30s and the 40s with Harry Guggenheim's sponsorship of Goddard's work. Um, so you kind of see a whole arc of private sector or independent sector funding of um, space research. So Musk, I think, is just sort of continuing that tradition. And um, I think that uh, Musk has has said on different occasions that he has been inspired by Robert Goddard's uh, work. Uh, and uh, so I think he does owe quite a bit to to those early years when Goddard was, you know, basically firing off the equivalent of uh, tin cans with a little, um, you know, uh, lawnmower engine attached to them. It's amazing. So so here we have Harry Guggenheim, aviation industry, uh, rocketry, not bad for a Yale dropout, and someone who didn't uh, win Wimbledon. Um, inflection points. You've had time. I mean, you've you've written this great book. Uh, you're you're talking to a very happy customer of your both the audio and the and the written book. You ever look back and thought, what were the inflection points for Harry Guggenheim? Yeah, I mean, he was very old school when it came to ideas about uh, the use of inherited wealth. Uh, I think it kind of came out of the uh, Andrew Carnegie's, Carnegie school of, uh, the, you know, the gospel of wealth with Andrew Carnegie wrote about the um, the importance of um, people who inherit a lot of money as being good stewards of that money, not, not just simply, um, you know, uh, enjoying the wealth that they that they received. So I think Harry took that idea very seriously. Um, there were some ventures that um, I would say he, I don't want to say he fell into them, but they weren't exactly planned. Uh, like, for example, co-founding Newsday with his wife, Alicia Patterson. You know, the newspaper was something that he wanted to 
um, procure for his wife, partly just to keep her busy, but also um, uh, as something that he thought, well, you know, maybe it'll pay off and maybe it won't, but it's not a huge investment. Well, it turned out to be one of the most successful suburban newspapers in America, partly because of the timing. Um, and some of that is just luck, you know, uh, suburban nights were move, people were moving out of New York City out to Long Island. It was a growing market. There wasn't a lot of competition at the time. So it was kind of ripe for the picking, um, the, the audience for that newspaper. Um, and I think also, you know, luck also, Harry would be the first person to admit that luck played a role in a lot of his uh, horse racing ventures. Um, he started it as a hobby. He literally started his stable with one horse. Um, a couple of decades later, he had been to the Kentucky Derby five times. He won once. And then at the end of the 1950s, he matched Vanderbilt's feat of owning the 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 highest earning stables in the country. So it's kind of incredible that Harry Guggenheim, although he had a he had a large fortune, but I mean, he, by no means was he putting all of his money into horses. Vanderbilt's were putting way more money into their horses, and there were so many other famous families that were involving in involved in horse racing at the time, which in the 1950s at one point was literally more popular than baseball. You know, we forget now, right? History has kind of forgotten the the golden era of horse racing. Exactly, people were watching horse races like every weekend on television. So, in any case. With these other ventures, you know, they were, and, and actually I would say the museum is probably in that category as well. You know, Harry didn't seek out the job of building the Guggenheim Museum, but his uh, uncle Solomon had put him on the board. Um, and uh, the board, a, a year or two after Solomon died, decided, well, the museum has hit some some has hit a tough spot. There was a lot of controversy about the future of the museum, whether there was going to be a museum. So they tapped Harry, knowing his track record about all the things we've been talking about, and said, okay, if anybody can make this happen, Harry is is our guy. And uh, I think Harry um, didn't really know much about modern art. He was more interested into in the antiquities of Europe, um, um, classic art, art of the masters. He he didn't really have, and he hadn't really collected, I don't think hardly any modern art up until that point, but he sure learned fast. <laughs> and uh, the uh, I interviewed Richard Armstrong, who is the um, current director of the Guggenheim. And he said to me at one point, you know, without Harry's influence, uh, it's likely that the Guggenheim we know today would not resemble what we, what we currently have. So, um, so that was something that Harry kind of, um, again, I don't want to say fell into, but he 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 took over a job which I don't think he ever dreamed of building a museum of modern art, and um, and he did that pretty well as well. I think partly because he knew that the family's identity would would um, really be affected by the success of this museum, and I think that's um, that's largely proven to be true. And it required some finesse, uh, stroking some egos, uh, letting some people go so this thing could move uh, forward. Hey, sir, can I push back on one thing you said? Use the word luck. So do I get to just mildly, with all due respect, use the word luck? But I would also say, even in the realm of horse racing, this guy was super analytical. So even in the horse racing, he was observing things that, well, will this work? Will this work? 
And then there's another area where I thought he was super analytical. He used the term Moneyball when he was on this Citizens Committee on Control of Crime in New York as a 12-month uh, project. And it's like, how does he get on this? But I feel like they knocked it out of the ballpark. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, where in the hmm. world did this research surface on that particular project? I would have thought something like that would have been hidden away. And but yet, I love this little section in the book that, that you brought us. Well, Mark, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that because I, I was considering not even uh, oh, including glad. it in the book because I felt you like oh, it's going to be too big of a diversion. And, um, you know, what's happened in the last, I guess, 10 years or so is there uh, you can now get access to newspaper archives that you could never have gotten in the past. And when I was doing research for this book, um, you know, New York Public Library um, – has something called the Allen Room for people who are writers under contract, and they give you a lot of access to to resources. Um, uh, I don't think many of these are unique to to the Allen Room, but they just sort of you know it, make it easier for you. And um, I was astounded to find some of these newspaper archives that literally go back to the 17th century. Um, stuff that you can't even believe that's been coded and uploaded. Um, so new, the newspapers at the time, uh, like, for example, you're asking about the Crime Commission in New York, yes, um, which was happening right up to, to just in the years prior to World War II and then actually continued after the war began. Um, the, the newspaper sources for that group of people were, were uh, fairly rich in terms of documenting what they were doing, what their objectives were. And there were also other crime commissions in other big cities around the country that had been around and that had a track record. So there were there were templates that Harry okay. could follow. Um, I think one of the reasons, though, that Harry was tapped to head that commission, he was appointed by Fiorella uh, LaGuardia, um, as I note in the book, um, uh, he, you know, he was he could be a money raiser. Uh, a fundraiser. And um, as a public-private partnership, it would require some private money to um, to go forward. So Harry was tapped partly for that reason, but also he did have these incredibly analytical skills. He, you know, there's, he was sort of a, he was a very wonky person and he was never happier than he could, never happier than when he could sit down with a big stack of profit and loss statements from some Guggenheim business or some other venture that he was involved with and pour through these documents looking for hidden truths, hidden meanings that, that he could decipher uh, based on, um, you know, data collection. So that whole, that crime commission was all about collecting data on um, people who were uh, posted bond, people who were, um, uh, you know, kind of conviction rates of the various uh, district attorneys in the boroughs of five boroughs of New York. So he was looking for patterns uh, in this data, and he found some that suggested that there was a lot of corruption going on in places that people had not thought to look. So the uh, the upshot of the crime commission, at least while he was running it, was uh, some conviction of people in the um, Brooklyn DA's office. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a, um, it was a useful enterprise, uh, but it didn't continue partly because World War II kind of sort of changed the meaning of everything at that time in terms of the public priorities. 
Uh, so it didn't last, but I, I do think Harry was in his element when it came to, um, you know, using data as a way to um, change the dynamics of a business or an enterprise. You know, he he was very, very big on the idea of um, the power of research in business. And um, he didn't, you know, kind of make decisions from his gut or his into what, you know, he said, show me the numbers. Let's see what we can figure out in terms of actual metrics. And a lot of times, he would come up with his own metrics. He would come up with alternative metrics to figure out why something within some venture that he was uh, funding was was not working or was maybe working, but could be bigger or expanded into larger parameters than than what, uh, you know, kind of conventional thinking might suggest. So he was a data guy and also very much an open source uh, person, open source technology. You know, he wanted technology to be shared with other people. Uh, which he felt was not a competitive disadvantage. Rather, it would kind of like rise up the entire um, business sector that uh, that he had any you know particular interest in, especially rocketry and aviation. Uh, so um, anyway, it's kind of a long answer to a short question, but I was going to uh, say nine thousand file cards of every category of crime. This is before the era of the PC. It just, again, boggles uh, my mind. A couple of quick questions before we wrap up. And boy, I good thing you don't live here in Columbia, Missouri, because I'd be wanting to hang out with you. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. I want to hear about yeah. the, uh, the research. But the family members who, who are Guggenheims or who have some relationship of Harry, they have to be happy, thrilled. If you gotten feedback, I, I, I would just think who wouldn't want Harry as their uncle or 15th cousin? Uh, just what a great book, Dirk, you've written. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Mark. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people that were um, a lot of people in the family who were surprised at Harry's um kind of level of um uh interest and his also his relationships with people that were really kind of behind the scenes um you know five us presidents he had relationships with um you know some of them were just passing but um in the case of eisenhower for example you know he spent a lot of time over at the white house uh with with eisenhower who was um a moderate republican but a guy who very much believed in public-private partnerships and uh, the power of business to, um, you know, advance the um, the agenda of the country. So um, things like that, you know, I mean, he had a, a kind of he had sit downs with both LBJ and JFK, uh, which I chronicle in the book. A lot of family members had no idea he he had even met a U.S. president. And actually, when he met with Kennedy in the Oval Office one day, Kennedy said, uh, you know, made a reference to. Um, to Harry saying, well, gee, you know, you must really know this office. You've been here for several prior presidents going back to um, Mr. Hoover. And Harry corrected Kennedy. He said, well, actually, I was here when Calvin Coolidge was uh, president. That was my first visit to the Oval Office. So things like that, I think the family found fascinating. Um, and also just the fact that this is such a deep dive on 
one particular family member. I think the Guggenheims are used to um, seeing stories about the family as a collective entity. So the fact that there could be as much interesting material on a single family member like Harry, I think um, surprised a lot of people. But the, the feedback has been very positive. You mentioned in the book that he was a very private man. He's not the kind of person who would be on Twitter today not like that. I mean, nothing like that. Very private. So he didn't, he didn't have a lot of letters that he'd written that you could go back to. So, I mean, you did all this in-depth research on him. You gained a friend in this process. What are you going to remember the most as you keep moving forward? I know there may be other writing projects, but as you maybe three, four or five years from now, what are you going to remember the most about this amazing, larger-than-life historical figure? We'll be right back. Have you ever heard a new digital trend and thought to yourself, okay, does this really matter? Asking the right questions helps you cut through the noise and get down to what matters most. I'm Jim Hertzfeld, host of the What If So What podcast, where we discover what's possible with digital and figure out how to make it real by asking what if, so what, and most importantly, now what? Subscribe and listen, and together we can turn big ideas into tangible actions so you can get shit done. Well, I I guess I will, I, I think there'll be a number of things that I'll remember, Mark, but one in particular is just the value of um, tenacity. Because, you know, we all seek that in life, right? It's like we all want to be motivated and inspired every day and we don't have it every day. Um, but the days that we have it are days that we really um, ex- succeed. And um, I think Harry showed uh, what uh, what can, what tenacity can really do uh, in a business or in life. And, uh, you know, it definitely inspired me to try to do justice to um, uh, what his life was like over the years. Uh, I hope I've done that. I, I think I, my my feeling was that a lot of people will read about certain aspects of his life and kind of you know may may begin to lose patience because they may not be that interested in horse racing or newspaper publishing or but they might be very interested in aviation or technology or the rocket age. So I tried to make um, covering so much history because the book covers you know I mean close to a hundred years, really, when you think about it, um, to try to make it breezy so that you move, uh, quickly through these different milestones of the life of this famous family and this person, Harry Guggenheim, who I think is, uh, one of the most influential business figures of the 20th century, who most people have never heard of. Agree. Yeah. So, um, I, I attempted to do that in this book and, uh, I think he would, um, I think he would like it. <laughs> and he would be the first to say, I am not a perfect human being because he admits two of his biggest failures in life. Yeah. His, um, clearly those were his marriages. And uh, I respect the fact that he took responsibility for, well, his first two marriages were pretty much disasters by the end of the relationships. His third marriage uh, did not end for any uh f- fault of his although uh that marriage was also 
pretty much a, a roller coaster. And by I think by the end of his third marriage with Alicia Patterson, really he was talking to his wife through lawyers for the most part. Right. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I give the man five stars. I give your work five star. I give this book five stars. This is a, this is a gem of a book. Hey, we asked this to every author and I have a feeling you are a reader yourself. So again, I want to be nosy. Uh, what are you reading now? And then I'd also like to know what some of your favorite books are. Uh, boy, Mark, that's a great question. Well, I just finished uh, Robert Caro's uh, book, uh, Working, which he wrote as a kind of a mini memoir of his interview approaches. And, um, you know, there's material in there about how he uh, sort of what, what it was like to interview Robert Moses when he was doing research for the power broker. Um, by the way, Robert Caro used to work at Newsday uh, while Harry was running it. And um, he did um, the initial stories in, in Newsday about Robert Moses, which turned into the power broker, his you know, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book on, um, on Robert Moses. So working is a it's a short book. But for anyone interested in journalism or writing history, um, it's it's a great little great little book by Robert Caro. Um, let's see. My daughter gave me a book recently called Alone on the Wall. And that is a um, sort of a first person account uh, by this immensely talented rock climber, free soloist named uh, Alex Honnold. And he and so he he wrote about the you know, he was the first person to solo El Capitan in Yosemite. Um, absolutely amazing book. And um, you don't have to be interested in free soloing to to get a lot out of it. Um Let's see. I guess um, the Zachary Carabell book um, about the history of Brown Brothers, Brown Brothers Harriman, that's a great read. And that addresses a lot of these issues we were talking about earlier, uh, Mark, in terms of the responsibility of the Gilded Age wealth um, and um, sort of accountability uh, of uh, wealth in America. That book is is a great read. Um, oh, and uh, Mary... Um, Mary Childs' new book, The Bond King. I think you're going to be talking, or maybe you've talked to her we already. Just, we just we just dropped that show this past weekend. That was ah. an interesting, provocative uh, read. And and the way um, she brought it together, I have a feeling your styles are similar. And and, mm-hmm. and agree that that was a good, and I knew nothing about Bill Gross. I am absolutely going to listen to that interview this week. Um because I, you're, I, I think you're right about that. You know, she writes it in a very accessible, breezy style because, um, you know, you bring up the subject of bonds, right? And sort of like half the people at the table go, oh, no, who wants to talk about bonds? So boring. She makes it exciting or at least interesting. <laughs> and there, there is drama in the book. Uh, and so yes. there, there, there's, there's obstacles and there's also an entrepreneurial aspect of it in, in at the beginning. So, and again, she, again, she's, she, she, she nailed it. I, I thought she did a great job uh, with the book. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I've just started that and um, you know, we had Guggenheim partners where I used to work. We have our own bond King named uh, Scott Minard. who's the, um, uh, the, the, you know, one of the senior people there who manages a portfolio of um, fixed income and bonds that are um, approaches something like 
I don't know, 200 billion. Um, and uh, I always admired the way he would make bonds a much more interesting subject than the average person, certainly myself, uh, could uh, could make them by uh, by talking about them. So, um, you know, I think with all of these examples, Mark, you know, you you kind of get back to that. But for me, anyway, it kind of comes back to that line by um, David McCullough about, um, you know, you can look at history of anything, history of technology, history of culture, religion, you name it. But at the end of the day, history is the story of people. So I think that's, you know, that was my perspective going into this with Harry Guggenheim. It's sort of the idea of looking at history through the eyes of a single person. Um, and that's not everyone's cup of tea. A lot of people feel like that's kind of like an outdated concept of um, of looking at history. But um, I'm a huge fan of the genre of biography. And um, I, I love the approach myself. And sometimes you can fall into a trap of of giving a single person too much credit. Um, but it, it really is all in how you craft the narrative and how you bring in the other people who were involved in a, a, a person's life that you're writing about. Um, so it doesn't have to be that way just because you're looking at a historical period through a single person's uh, eyes. But in this case, um, I felt like Harry Guggenheim was well worth singling out as a individual who had a huge impact on 20th century history and how fun it is to discover someone behind the scenes, a kind of a hidden figure who had that impact, who most people have never heard of. I asked Mary this question, is there another book in you? And she said, well, I'm, I'm kind of tired. Uh, this has been exhausting. I'll ask you the same question. Do you think there's going to be another book in you down the road? Yes. Uh, I'm actually considering a couple of different subjects at the moment. Um, I think one lesson that I have drawn from this, from the book on Harry Guggenheim is that it is better if possible to write about, uh, to, to write about someone who's still alive or at least someone who has not been gone for so long. Um, um, and or has been willing to write their own memoir or, you know, kind of um, uh, expose themselves to their own motivations to some degree um, uh, over time. Because um, Harry was a very difficult person to figure out. I'm still trying to figure him out. Um, I, I call him a Delphic figure, you know, um, because as you as you mentioned, you know, there's just he, he corresponded a lot with folks, but it was by far the majority of his correspondence was very um, kind of measured and diplomatic and businesslike. And in terms of what his real motivations for doing X, Y, or Z over time, it was very difficult to figure those out to the extent that I was able to. Um, and he did not leave behind his own memoir or any kind of journals or, um, you know, personal correspondence that you could glean a lot of um, ideas from in terms of motivation or, you know, things that kind of guided his decision-making over the years. So um, I think I would like to do a bio on someone who um, uh, maybe was a little more transparent, maybe a little more accessible, if possible. <laughs> uh, so, um, so that's kind of, uh, that, that would be my, my kind of approach in the future if I do wind up doing another uh, biography. This has been one of the most anticipated interviews I've been looking forward to this year. Again, an honor. Thank you for the book. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Took a ton of notes. 
And, and again, thank you for being on. My pleasure, Mark. And I hope to be with you again soon. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. When I read a biography, I want it to reach out to me and grab me by telling me something I don't already know. I want to be instructed. I want to see a man or a woman who has impacted the world around them and beyond. And finally, I want to be inspired. And Harry Guggenheim, he checks off every box there. Dirk Smiley, very well done on the masterpiece about Harry Guggenheim, the business of tomorrow. For CFO Bookshelf, I'm Mark Gandy.